Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. In today's episode, I'm actually a guest on my friend Barry Dock's podcast, The Economic Warrior. We had fun recording it. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Always good to see my friend James uh, Nethery. And uh, last time I saw you was over like a seven hour Zoom board meeting. Um, but you're still as handsome as ever, and uh, uh, it's, it's one of the uh, pleasures of, of, of my life, of my professional business life, is to getting to know guys like you, um, and I have tremendous respect for you and what you've done. Um, but could you just first tell our audience out there, because I want to share this, um, how you get into the financial services business, James, and um, how, you, how you get into it first. I mean, let me hear your story. Okay. Well, thank you for saying that, Barry. You're a highlight of my professional career, meeting guys like you, legitimately. Um, you know, and I remember when we first met, we'll get to that, how I first got into the financial services industry, um, you know, it was, it was way back in the late 80s. I, uh, I've always had an affinity for um, mature people, right? So I started writing Medicare supplements before they were standardized. And and then I ran into uh, A.L. Williams. And, and <laughs> the coach. The coach. The coach. Yeah, that organization. And uh, I just like the idea of helping people. Yeah. Right? And uh, I didn't want to be broke my whole life. I grew up very poor. And... You know, I thought the financial services industry would be a way to get paid well and help others. Turns out that's true if uh, if you do the right thing. Yeah. Of course, I didn't I didn't know that back then. But I bought into the uh, buy term and invest the difference hook, line, and sinker. That was along about okay. nineteen ninety one. I didn't know. I didn't know you were for for the coach. You oh, listen. Yeah, it was temporary. You know, they used to license up everybody, get a temporary license, and then go sell all your friends and family. And it's kind of like the meat grinder, and uh, then you move on. But see, I went to work for a company, a big Fortune 500 company, that that A.L. Williams had worked for uh, prior to moving out on his own. And he actually took, my understanding is he took that idea of buy term and invest the difference from is a Torchmark company, right? Then was I'm, it Torchmark or did it? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and uh, that was their philosophy. They had front-end mutual funds, or front-end loaded mutual funds back in the day, Perry at 8.5%. That was the norm, <laughs> right? And then they had uh, term uh, to age 100. Term. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But, you know, you think that the market's always going to go up forever, and they still it, yeah, it makes sense. And so that's kind of how uh, that's when I got started and why I really just wanted to help people bought into that. But my experience was people didn't live outlive the need for life insurance. Right. And then the markets, oddly enough, didn't always go up, you know, in these big printouts, these mountain you know, wave graphs <laughs> that it's like, oh, if you'd have put ten thousand dollars in the, you know, the mutual fund in nineteen thirty, yeah, the mountain charts, <laughs> yeah, and uh, 
I got disillusioned pretty quickly, but I was a registered representative, you know, writing mutual funds, variable contracts, life insurance, um, some annuities, variable annuities, and things like that. And then I just became very disillusioned. You know, it's just, it wasn't true. What I thought to be true wasn't true. And so I couldn't, you know, feel good about it. So I went from there to, uh, you know, just writing life insurance and final expense, Medicare supplement, driving all over the country the old-fashioned way, door-to-door, store-to-store, floor, you know, floor-to-floor. And uh, and it, it was rewarding. And uh, then I met, so I wasn't classically trained from a mutual life insurance company perspective, you know, the big old yeah. uh, mutual companies that have training. I didn't have any of that. <clears throat> um, but then about 16 years ago, well, I, I went from, it, it continued, it developed into retirement planning, and I held retirement seminars for years where, you know, you invite people to come, you feed them lunch, potentially, and, and then you um, present legitimate solutions for retirement. Um, and then I met Nelson Nash along about 2003. And four. All right. Okay, so you and I. Okay, so then you and I met Nelly about the same time. Was that when in Birmingham? Maybe we, when? Yeah, is that when I met you for right around then? Was that? Yeah, actually, actually, I met Nelson. I mean, I I went to a two day conference. Uh, you know, an industry conference, outside speakers, and they're all presenting their best practices and. And there were a couple of authors there that had written books, and but everybody was, you know, sharing openly, and and there was a lot of reference material, and in that reference material, I bought all of the books that they referenced, right? Um, and and Nelson's book, Becoming Your Own Banker, was one of the books that I had purchased, and so I took it all home, and I finally got around to reading it, and when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, Barry, I was angry. I couldn't believe I didn't know this about life insurance. I couldn't believe you could do with life insurance what you could do with it. I got up the next morning, and I called the number on the back of the book to order some books, and Nelson himself answers, right? And I think this was, it was either late 2003 or maybe 2004. We had a great conversation that wound up uh, something along this line. He said, uh, boy, I hold 10-hour seminars all across the country, and you need to get yourself to one. So I did. I went to uh, Arkansas, I believe, a couple of weeks later, listened to him, sat in the back, took copious notes, flew home, changed everything that I was doing personally with my life insurance, been teaching my clients how to do it ever since. And back then, Nelson held... Uh, think tank annually sometimes twice a year and the first think tank that I went to I think was the second or third think tank that he had held and you were presenting there you were uh, researching your first book putting it all together the first book that's right yeah and I'll you know I'll be always grateful for Nelson because um, you know I was going through a tough time in my life I had to reinvent myself and uh you know, I had realized um, at the time, uh, I had come to the conclusion a lot of the stuff sold by Wall Street, even to this day, never worked. And uh, I knew life insurance annuities worked. And, and that was, and, and uh, I'll be forever grateful for Nelson. He says, you have to finish this work, Barry. And, um, and I did, and I, and, uh, but I knew I had to have an audience. And so 
Um, but anyways, that was that was the start of it. And uh, he, you know, we we both had a wonderful relationship with uh, Nelson uh, Nash. What what a, what a blessing he was in my life. Right, no question. <clears throat> I remember. Uh, you know, I don't think we spent a lot of time at that first think tank talking. There's a, a lot of other people there. I think 18 to 24 agents from across the country, you know. Uh, but, man, that your your books are extremely powerful. They're almost required reading. We promote them in our practice every day, day in and day out. So I'll take a shameless, unsolicited plug here. If you haven't read his kids, books. I thank you. My kids thank you. Yeah. Yeah, you need to read the books. Pirates of Manhattan to this day, it's documented to the nth degree. Pirates of Manhattan 1 and 2 and then Guaranteed Income. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, so I'm going to take the opportunity. I had last year or so a a guy had called me out of the blue, you know, and said, James, I've discovered this infinite banking concept and, you know, and I'm really interested in it, but I want to learn about it. And so I gave him a list of books to read. Right. And because he he wanted them. And so uh, uh, Becoming Your Own Banker, Nelson's first book, his second book. And then I went through your books and uh, he said, oh, yeah, yeah. I've been talking to an agent that that wants me to own universal this index universal life. And he gave me a copy of Guaranteed Income. And I asked the guy, I said, well, my gosh, did the agent read the book before he gave it to you? Does he even know what is in the book? And the, and, and the guy's kind of looking at me. And I said, listen, Barry does not uh, promote, endorse, or encourage the use of universal life. So the man might need to read the book before he gives it to his prospective client. <laughs> Have I ever told you that? No. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so. But that doesn't surprise me, you know, when... It was one of my favorite quotes is my people perish due to lack of knowledge. And uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so, so what, what I saw, James, um, so how long have you been in this business now? Since the 80s, right? Uh, ni- it's 1991, because prior to that, I worked on a temporary license, you know, with A.O. Williams and the Medicare supplement. You could get a temporary license for six months. I did that twice. In temporary um, license. Yeah, do you remember those? Okay. <laughs> oh, they don't have this up in uh, New England. Only in Texas. You know, in crazy. Everything's big. But no, so what, what I've seen, James, is, um, and I kind of, it's, it's sad, but what I've seen is really um, in the olden days where people had, you know, guaranteed pensions and things like that, all, and there was some re- risk retained by uh, institutions, it's all been shifted onto the um, to the consumer, yeah, and and to me it's tragic because people get so busy. You know, we have clients or busy business people or executives or just regular folks. Okay, you know, they're just trying to make a living. And so what has happened? What I've seen essentially is has been more and more shrouding or hiding of risks to the consumer. And you know, index universal life it has its place. Um, uh, I'm not I'm not totally uh, you know. But it, it, it's another risk-shifting product on the consumer. No question. It violates a, it, Barry, it violates the very spirit and principle of insurance. Insurance is the offsetting of risk to another party, right? Okay. When the owner 
the consumer purchases universal life of all kinds, indexed, variable universal life, the old-fashioned, you know, straight universal life, they retain the risk. So the risk that we believe we're offsetting to the insurer is 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 retained by us. And then you get all the the sales, you know, well, you can't lose money because you have these caps and these floors and you know, it all sounds good. It makes for a great sales presentation, but the consumer retains the risk of even having risk. a death. That's right. Even the risk of even having a death benefit in force, having an account value and having a stable premium. None of that is guaranteed. And the consumer retains the risk of all of that. And so, my gosh, why, why buy life insurance if you're going to retain the risk? Yeah, and so so that's what so that's what's happened really, you know, to the life insurance. Uh, but you know, with all these the four hundred one ks, four hundred three bs, it's all it's just it's, it's the whole bloody casino, James. Would you agree? I mean, it's just no question. It's, it's just it's it's just gambling, gambling, gambling. You know, and the funny thing is, like, you research out the cultures, like the Germans, they think we're nuts. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> you know the Germans. They, they put with eighty five percent of their savings into uh, into things like banks and um, into uh, insurance products and things like that. They don't. They think stocks and mutual funds are just gambling. And the more I know about it, um, uh, and even with these indexing, and I'm you know I'm a registered investment advisor, and you are as well. So we handle other people's money. Uh, so we have to be very prudent about that. I I like indexing. Um, but it's but it's really I, I a lot of these things have turned into what I call communist funds, and they've turned people into <laughs> passive. It, they've turned them into passive pigeons. Oh, oh my god! You know, I, I get an email from a guy the other day. It's like, oh, isn't indexing great? Well, you know, how much did you lose in March? Oh, six hundred thousand. Just indexing, you know. So, but um, I, but I'm back up. I'm back up. <laughs> you know. <laughs> You know, so it's this is so. So we're really, uh, I think, really in the wealth preservation business, or the how can I put it, uh, the financial well-being business. Would that make sense, James? At this point, yes, I I think so. You know, uh, with what's going on in our economy and in the world economy, it's unprecedented. We've never been here before. I'm an optimist. I'm, I don't believe everything is going to collapse tomorrow, but. Yeah, I agree. Um, there's trouble ahead, you know, acting like we're acting, printing money out of thin air. Um, you know, we're continually kicking the can down the road. But um, so, yes, I think that we should pay attention and, and we should focus on asset preservation, the control of our money. Right. And then the, we want, of course, tax efficiency, legacy efficiency, you know, everything that we accumulate and create on this earth is going to be left to someone else when we graduate. And yeah. we want, right, and so we want that to transfer efficiently um, as possible. So I think if you focus on the fundamentals of asset preservation, income, and liquidity as we grow older, as we age, I think that becomes more important than a rate of return. I'm not saying that we should not enjoy a rate of return. But I believe that we should, um, as consumers and individuals, I think we should be realistic on what we should expect as a rate of return. Um, 
And then you have things like inflation and taxation, which are the greatest, some of the greatest threats to all of our wealth in our estates. And so I think consumers need to seek out people like you, Barry, that have been around and know what's going on and, and know how to put together personal finances in a way that we can enjoy a reasonable rate of return with reasonable expectations and mitigate, minimize, or avoid risk, right? And maintain proper liquidity in the face of the unknown future because the future is unknown. And then we have to be aware of the rising healthcare costs in America. It's, it's a tragic, you know? Um, and I think the consumer should seize that opportunity sooner than later, I might add. The, uh, the government has stepped in and taken over and control of health care, right? And I think they're going to do, they're going to absolutely try to do the same thing in the financial services industry. They're going to step in and, and uh, try to control it completely. And I think guys like you and I are, um, we have a limited life expectancy in business, my opinion, whether it's five years or 10 years, I think the government wants to control your money. And uh, yeah. I, I couldn't disagree with you uh, at all, uh, James, and um, which, um, which one of the things, so what really affected me, um, which is, uh, and I got introduced to this through our, our mutual friend, Nelson Nash, was the, uh, Austrian School of Economics. Matter of fact, I, I, I've spoken to Jeff, and the last time we, I saw Jeff, I was with you. We were down in Nelson's funeral down there. We were uh, down in uh, Birmingham. Um, but um, one of the things which uh, which kind of changed my life was the Austrian School of Economics, you know, uh, founded by Ludwig von Mises. I don't know if it was founded by him, but that he was the, the major thinker behind that. And then you had guys like Murray Rothbard and, and who was like, probably one of my favorite writers. How much did that influence your life in, in terms of what, what you're doing now about having a sound money supply, you know, because what they're doing now, they're just, they're trashing the dollar, you know? And so, but Mises, how much did Mises really make a difference in your life? Well, like you, I was not really aware of Austrian economics, you know, after 14 years in the financial world, I had, no knowledge of Austrian economics per se. And, and I think Mises uh, is a modern with Hayek and Rothbard. They're yeah. kind of the modern face of Austrian economics. And Austrian economics is, you know, named Austrian economics, I think because of Karl Menger and some of the earlier, you know, uh, founders of the school, Austrian school of economics. And so I was aware of none of that until I met Nelson, right? And, uh, yeah. Nelson shared with me Fee, the Foundation of Economic Education, and uh, his mentor, Leonard E. Reed and Hayek and a couple of other gentlemen started Fee, and and then from Fee sprang Mises, you know, uh, the Mises Institute, and and. You know, that's when I was exposed to it. I learned that Leonard E. Reed had a hand in bringing Mises over, you know, getting them out of Austria, out of the grips of uh, Nazi Germany, right? Nazi Germany, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, and I've learned quite a bit, you know, about Austrian economic sense. I don't want to be uh, a professor or an academician, but 
Neither do I, you know. Right. I think that they have it more right. The Austrian School of Economics have it more right than the other uh, economic schools of thought. Free money. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. So now the the funny thing is is that uh, so what we do if, I don't know if you still face this I still do on a day to day basis people say well this is so good to be true why isn't everyone doing this you know why is people <laughs> using safety you know planning it uh, do, do you still get that James I still I still uh, get that yeah that's very common I remember you know the four questions it seems like were very prevalent it's, it's like why have i never heard of this the infinite banking concept <laughs> um is it legal is it right? legal <laughs> yeah you know and, and and can you really do this and then the fourth one always dates the they every we date ourselves because the fourth one is really a statement it's like well i wish i'd have learned this 20 years ago or 10 years ago or 30 years ago um and and I think a lot of things are going on there. Why the big wide world is this isn't more well known. I think what I have come to believe that number one, the life insurance didn't the life insurance industry, the life insurance companies did not create this concept, the infinite banking concept. No. Right? no. Most of the companies look at it as a sales gimmick or a sales tool, right? You know, I've heard some of these big wheels in the life insurance industry. It's like, oh, you can't sell life insurance, you know, so you got to use that kind of gimmick, which the guys probably don't even own life insurance. Let me say this, that you would be surprised how many life insurance home office executives, presidents, VPs, RVPs do not own life insurance. Just think on that for a bit. Okay, so the life insurance industry didn't create it. And typically, uh, historically, outstanding loans on life insurance policies was a precursor to a lapse. So the life insurance company, the industry, typically looks at outstanding loans as policies that are going to lapse, right? So they don't really have a positive view on outstanding loans. And then some of them, Barry, have the same mentality as every other financial institution, and let me ask you this. How much of your money does your bank want you to withdraw? Yeah. None. And then how much of your money does your bank want you to leave with them? Right. The, some, all of it. Some of the life insurance companies have the same attitude. They don't want you to take a loan. They don't want you to exercise a contractual right that you have to borrow against the cash value. Right, they're afraid you're not going to pay it back. And, you know, who wants to live in fear anyway? I'm just saying. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what they're selling. It was fear, James. Would you agree? I mean, no if question. we go in this clear-headed, this is how it works. This is so that's un- unfortunately, that's fear sells in America, not, not doing the right thing. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, two, you know, back in the day, I think mutual funds really got it. The first mutual funds were created in the late 30s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mass Financial, actually, in Boston, believe it or not. We're, I'm right here. I'm right here at ground zero for the for the fund industry. You know, yep. uh, Putnam was started here. Mass Financial was started here. Infidelity. I mean, Wellington, which is essentially the back 
Office Work, Vanguard, um, they're all here. Um, so yeah, but anyway, that's when they started. Right. And they so were, if, they, yeah. If you look, you know, historically from about the 50s and the 60s and previous to that, uh, Americans held a lot of wealth in life insurance. You know, their farm, their hard assets, and but their money, they, they held it in life insurance policies. So the mutual fund industry gets its start in the, in the 30s, and it's, you know, um, it's all about assets under management. Then you go through the 80s. I mean, it's kind of uh, odd if you step back and look that, that the uh, 401k, the IRA, the Keogh plan, the Keogh plan came out in the 80s, the mid to late 80s. That's when Congress, through Ralph Nader and the consumer protectionists, you know, tried to beat up and they did a thorough job of beating up whole life insurance. And then there was a weak defense from the life insurance industry. So, you know, basically the Senate colluded with the mutual fund industry and said, oh, life insurance is too good. We're going to have to put limits on what you can put in. You know, you're, this is a tax loophole for the rich, which is hogwash, right? So in the late 80s, the 401ks come out, right? The mutual fund industry has been competing against life insurance since the mutual fund industry's conception. And then Congress colludes with people like A.L. Williams, the term promoters, the mutual fund industry, beating up life insurance. So uh, adding to why people are not maybe more aware, why haven't we been more aware of the infinite banking concept? Uh, Some of it is on purpose, right? From the life insurance industry, and then from the financial services industry as a whole, Wall Street, right? Because your money must reside somewhere. And if you're not putting large premiums in real estate or, or life insurance or buying large, you know, tracts of land or real estate, then, you know, it's typically the the, 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 the narrative is you need to put your money in the market. You need so. to gamble with it. We need to gamble with it. You know, yeah. market always goes up, always goes up, you know, you, need, you know, it's, and but but that you know thank God I was blessing in my life. It, I think it was a God moment when I just discovered holy moly who were the biggest buyers of permanent life insurance was the banks, the Federal <laughs> oh Reserve. God. Okay, the people who are controlling the whole bloody economy and no one knows about it even to it, this day, James. I know you know it's like A. O. Williams, right? The term promoter. The the guy's probably drinking my ties off the. Of, in the Florida Keys. I don't know. I'm not disparaging. I'm just sharing my experience, right? So a coach, his dad dies early and he had whole life insurance. And so, oh my gosh, that's the evil thing. So you got to buy term, you have more death benefit. And and so they he starts this multi-level marketing organization writing life insurance and mutual funds, right? A.O. Williams. Buy term and invest the difference. The coach. Okay. Right. Well, who purchased them? I mean, what what allowed him to drink my ties off the Florida Keys? Right. Citigroup. Citigroup. Oh, okay. Citigroup. Citigroup. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Now Citigroup. Um, it, well, it was Prime America, right? A.L. Williams. Then it turned into Prime America. And then Citigroup buys Prime America. You tell us, my good friend Barry, how much whole life insurance does Citigroup own? Uh, at least four, four to five, six billion. Uh, okay, it, it, that's the cash surrender value. Yeah. So, yeah. So, the whole, oh. yeah. so, so they're 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 doing one thing and telling their consumers <laughs> to do something else. What a coincidence! You know. So, 
So anyway, so it, 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 it's complete hypocrisy. Okay, so you know, with these, you know, and, and I shared with you some of my my, you know, my private research with these banks like UBS and Bank of America and Lloyd's, and we go on and on and on and on and on and on. How they buy permanent life insurance and annuity products for themselves, but they want you to gamble everything with everything. Yeah, it's working for somebody, isn't it? <laughs> they, they make them rent. So, so let me ask you. So, you've been you do business all around the country like we're doing now, um, but you've had didn't you've been able to get like some high end executives come in to say with some very you know, prominent consulting firms saying, James, I want to do this. Could you tell us, share us about, you know, some of these, I know we don't have to mention the company. Who they yeah, are, I can't, I can't do that. I, we can, okay, but can you just tell our listeners about some of these very highly paid, very high net worth people, how they've approached you? Yeah, typically they just call or email, right? <laughs> and they, they've done their homework. You know, and some of these, I'm, I mean, listen, these, some of these are household names, the institutions, right? They're, they're presidents, vice presidents, regional presidents or vice presidents, but they've done their homework. They all know that there's something wrong in the economy, right? And they're, they're just like all of us becoming disillusioned with the typical financial advice where, I, where we assume all the risk and pay all the fees and... So they're just like us. They just make more money than us, right? They have a different lifestyle and all that, but they're still real. They're salt of the earth people, right? Yeah. And they discover it like everybody else. They run across it. They 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 just happen to be exposed to the idea, and then they do their research, and they wind up calling. And, and quite honestly, uh, some of these guys are forensic accountants. Yeah. Uh, so – Beyond what's going on in the big wide world, they have looked at the books of life insurance companies, right? And not every life insurance company is created equal, although I do believe it is mutual life insurance companies against the world. Yeah. That's yeah, my personal is. philosophy. Um, so that's how they, and, and that's how, that's who they are. That's how they come to uh, get in contact with us just doing research they get exposed to the idea they've done some research which winds up really taking somebody if you um, genuinely research the infinite banking concept you're going to wind up at the Nelson Nash Institute right that's Birmingham Alabama and, and today there's a lot more videos and podcasts and books on the subject than there was 15 years ago you know when you wrote your book yeah Nelson's book was the only other thing out there that talked, you know, legitimately about the economy and whole life insurance, right? But, um, so, I mean, that's it. They, they're just like us. They uh, do their own research, however they get exposed to it, and they, they look at the financials of life insurance companies, and then, you know, they wind up uh, calling me and people like you, which is some of the smartest decisions they've made, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, you know, the whole thing is, is that, um, you know, and I'm not, a, I'm, I'm a capitalist, okay, um, you know, I, uh, both you and I are small business people, we have payrolls to meet and uh, expenses to meet and the whole thing, so I'm all for profits, um, but also, because you're in the great state of Texas, um, uh, now, there's certain states like Texas and New York and Florida and so forth, 
um, where the, the, these products, well, these annuities and insurance products, they're, they're like gold in terms of asset protection. Can you tell us, our listeners or our viewers, if you will, about the you know, the Ken Lay protection, if you will? You know the Ken Lay story about how <laughs> yeah. Enron, do you, uh, do you know that story, right? I do. I do. Texas, you know, life insurance is uh, 100% asset protected, right? Florida, uh, New York, you know, California is pretty weak, but, um, and I'm bringing them into the conversation because New York, Texas, Florida, and a couple of other states, which- Arizona is really strong. Arizona is strong. I think Massachusetts is strong. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, Yeah, go ahead. But well, some of these states, because life insurance is regulated by the states, right? There's oversight by the federal government minimum, uh, but life insurance is regulated by the states, and some states are tougher on insurers than others. And New York is a tough place to do business for insurers. As a matter of fact, very old life insurance companies are not doing business in New York beginning this year, 2020. Right? Are you familiar with that? Yep. Yeah, you and I discussed that. That's a problem. Is it's it's, it's uh, I'm doing some business in New York. It's a real pain in the next state. I mean, it's just well, that's because Wall Street controls it anyhow. But that's, exactly. Uh, What's yeah, new? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Florida's you know relatively tough on the life insurance companies. Uh, Texas is very tough on the life insurance companies. So it's kind of good and bad. They're 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 tough on the life insurance industry. They're trying to protect the citizens of the states, right? Um, and, and so, speaking to your point, asset protection, there are some states better than others, and Texas is one of the best. You know? It is but one I, of the best. I must say that, uh, you know, Texas is losing some of their backbone, in my opinion. I've been a Texas resident my whole life. I love Texas. Um, but, you know, they need to get a stiffer backbone in Austin, my opinion. So, <laughs> there. I'll just leave it at that. Texas yeah. is a great state, okay? Yeah, but the, but the reason I bring it up was the Ken Lake protection. Remember? Because Enron, well, it was in 2000, James, was the, it was, the, I think, seventh largest company in the United States, whatever, in terms of market capitalization. And then, of course, it imploded. It was one of the greatest corporate bankruptcies. Um, but no, but but then when he when he died, uh, he had like thirteen million in assets and thirteen million liabilities. But he essentially was wiped out. But he had eleven million dollars left and split to all life insurance from his old Enron. And then uh, it's like three three and a half uh, million with uh, annuity uh, uh, on his life. And so when they essentially they set up the state uh, in because he was a uh, Texas resident. Linda Lay, we should get like 14, 15 million and no one can touch it. <laughs> you think he knew what he was doing? I think he, you know, I think he knew. And now the, and the whole thing is, is that um, what, what people really don't know is that this is what um, the de-risking now, which is going on uh, via insurance companies uh, for major corporations. And I've shared that with you. General Motors, Federal Express, you know. Um, uh, yeah, you know. this. Pension risk transfer, right? Big deal in the industry. Pension risk transfer. These companies can't can't guarantee, can't deliver 
these pension benefits that have been promised, you know, they're built on seven, eight, nine percent rates of return. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's not going to happen and they know it. So they're getting rid of the risk. They're transferring the risk away from them. Where is it going, Barry? Who are they transferring the risk to? The insurance companies, you know, the life companies, you know, the, the, the you know, the, 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 you know, so yeah, it's, um, it's because they can't leverage themselves to the hill. Um, although there's, there's another story why you and I stick with well-capitalized mutual companies because um, Wall Street's kind of getting into the space and um, I had to recommend people um, stay away from these folks because it's, um, now, some of the other things is the, uh, do you think people really know, James, what's going on? You know, because you and I discuss economics and stuff like that uh, every time we meet. Um, do people really understand what's going on within the, the fragility within uh, the economy? Um, you know, that's, I don't know if they really understand or to what depth that they understand or don't understand, but I think the consensus that I experience is they all know something's wrong. To what degree of uh, era the the uh, the markets are in, you know, the, the U.S. economy, I don't know that they know, uh, or I don't know how much they know. If, if I can, let me rephrase that. I think the majority of people knows that something is wrong. Do they know how bad it could be, or do they know the consequences? I think no. I think that's pretty much unknown, but I think they're aware. I mean, I'm seeing people, they're asking to buy silver. They're asking to buy gold. They're, they want to de-risk. They want to uh, mitigate. And I'm not saying move completely out of the market, but they want to get yeah. on the path of moving out of the market. They want asset protection. They want some safety. We just want some stability, you know, we want some surety. We want to be able to be confident if we're going to retire in the future or move into passive income time. You know, we just want some sense of knowing that we're not going to be broke, that we're going to be able to keep or maintain our lifestyle. And that's hard to know. You can't know that when the majority of your money is in the market. Who can know that? Unless you just have, you know, millions and millions of dollars in the market and then, you know, you can, and, and, and you have a very conservative lifestyle. So yeah. the short answer is, Barry, I think that the majority of the people that I speak with know that there's something wrong and they're aware and they're trying to mitigate the unknown. So I guess you and I have a lot of work. We're in education business, aren't we? Because if you look underneath the hood and, um, um, we know what's going on and um, you know and the funny thing is is that um, I talk with some you know some really like yourself some really well educated people and I've had engineers here in this very office here you know who, who designed jet engines and things like that or you know very very technical sharp guys and, and they get infuriated they say well you know why is GE I worked for GE for you know 35 years you and you're telling me what GE's doing and to de-risk their pension plans. And they never told me about this, right? You know, and you know, and, <laughs> or you know, or, or, or you know, like I have they're like a following with pilots and you know they're, they're very educated, very disciplined guys. I like them. 
They said, no one's ever told us this. Right. Everyone said, just put it all in the market, maximize my 401k. <clears throat> So that, um, that's very common. You know, these guys, these people, they know how to make money. They know how to save money. You know, they're very good at what they do. But, you know, they're like you mentioned earlier, we're all busy. We're all working. Um, and whenever we uh, engage with, you know, investment advisors at whatever level, you know, we expect them to do their job and to pay attention. And, uh, you know, that's not always the case. So I see an awful lot of that, you know, between the pilots, the engineers, the business owners, the real estate investors. I mean, and then everyday all American people working hard, saving money, living within or below their means. So they're accumulating money and wealth and assets, but they don't really know what to do with it. You know, they don't really know how to structure it consistently or congruently, right, for their own benefit. Um you know, the idea of piling up a bunch of money until retirement and then spending it down is not, uh, that's not uh, uh, the best default strategy. You know, it's just not the old 60 40 portfolio. Now the target date. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm not saying it won't work. Yeah, I'm not saying it can't work. You know, if you work hard enough and you eat beans and rice long enough and you pile up enough money, you may be out, maybe you'll outlive that pile of money. But maybe not, you know, and maybe if they engage with somebody who's educated and competent and comes from a, an educational perspective and not a sales perspective, um, they could probably do much better than they realize. That's, you know, what I believe. And I get up every day to push back the frontiers of ignorance when it comes to the infinite banking concept, um, because it's a life changing um, philosophy. It's a life changing activity. It like lowers your blood pressure. That does wonders for your health and your life expectancy. At the end of the day, when I can control my money, regardless of interest rates that I cannot control, and regardless of markets that I cannot control, what is that worth? And then how do you put that value on a statement? You can't. So. So. Um, James, um, this has been wonderful. It's always good to see my friend, friend James and other Um, how can people find out more about you and how can they contact you? And, uh, well, and you still have, you still have the video too, Banking with Life. Am I correct? Or? Yes. Banking with Life DVD. That's a documentary style video that promotes the idea of sound money, natural law, um, Austrian economics, the infinite banking concept. It's not a promotion of me or anyone, but that is available. And I think we, I produced that and released it on the 100 year anniversary of the Federal Reserve in 2013. So it's out there for seven years. And really, I should do uh, Banking with Life two and three so I can catch up with yeah, you. Yeah, because the Fed's, is, you know, it's, they're essentially destroying the economy with this money printing. Never ends up ends up well, but um, so, so look, you can you can go to banking with life dot com, and there's a lot of resources there. And then our contact information is on there. They can even buy your books, Barry, on my website. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, so. I thank you. My children thank you. You know, but uh, James, let's let's do this again sometime because uh, people. Um, um, really need to know what's going on. And um, I'm so grateful uh, that you're a, 
a, a friend and you know uh, and um, just a good guy thank you barry for saying that i appreciate you i appreciate what you do and i look forward to our next uh call all right all right god bless you all right Hang on. bye-bye Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.